sing to you. It is our joy, it is our pleasure to adore your son. We adore him. Lord, we would not be able to say that if it were not for the grace of God, the the spirit of God that came into our lives that granted us faith so we could repent of our sins and know you as our personal savior. So it is with great joy we sing each and every week. We sing throughout the week. We have been saved. We have a hope that the world does not know. Lord, thank you for this message. May we not hold this in. May we not, as the scriptures say, put a lamp or a bushel over it, Lord, but may we let this great light that we know you have done shine in our neighborhoods, on our jobs, in the communities that we live in, Lord. Lord, this world needs this message more than ever. So cause us to be those who can't wait to tell somebody of our joy. Lord, thank you for each and every one that's here. Lord, the visitors that are here. Lord, each and every one you have providentially guided here today. And we thank you that you do those things. Lord, we think of those who can't be here. We have some in the hospital that have fallen or have been hurt or going through procedures, Lord, several. And I know they would want to be here. Maybe are watching even now, Lord. We pray that you would help them recover, Lord. Bring them home quickly. Lord, for those of our dear members who aren't able to come anymore, they are shut in, Lord, in a sense. Help them know that we love them, Lord. Many of them know that you love them, but may we be clear in our attentions for those who can't be here. Lord, we think of our missionaries around the world. They are experiencing the same joy of this season because they too know that God sent his son to redeem man. And Lord, we pray that you would give them strength and courage to preach that message in their cities, in their villages, and wherever you have them around the world. Now, Lord, may we be good hearers of the word so we can be doers of it. Help us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. In all reality, if you don't believe that you were fully consumed with depravity before salvation and that you had no ability to save yourself, and hell awaited you when at final judgment. Christmas carols and Christmas truth are just merely jingles, aren't they? See, that's why it's so enjoyable to hear the congregation sing. See, these aren't fables to us. They aren't jingles. They aren't carols to us. We sing truth. We believe that God incarnate came. And if you believe that, you, it takes your theology all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It takes you all the way back to Genesis 3. There, man rejects God, and God now comes forth in their shame, comes forth to them as they hide, and pours out his plan, the eternal God with an eternal plan to rescue man. And listen, in that plan in Genesis 3, God presents himself as a savior. You study it. He presents himself as a savior. And then when we come to this miraculous conception, this virgin birth of Christ, God's plan is unveiled. It's unveiled. That's what we look at at Christmas. The plan laid down from thousands of years before now is here. And then we watch that plan in human form. We watch that plan in incarnation. Jesus, the God-man, fulfill it completely at the cross and the resurrection. So this morning, I want you to forget what this world is coming to. For a moment, I want you to forget what this world is coming to. A lot of crazy things going on, a lot of news, a lot of problems, isn't there? I want you to forget what this world is coming to, and I want you to think about what came to this world. So that's what's the difference in us. <laughs> this is why we don't get so afraid and so fearful of everything. The world is worried about what this is coming to. What are my grandchildren going to get? What, what's going to happen? Oh, we have peace because we know what came to this world. Now, last week, we looked at the unexpectedness of the place 
where the Lord came. Gabriel comes with this great message, this archangel coming from the presence of God. He glides past Jerusalem. He glides past the temple. He glides past all the elites. He lands in a little place called Nazareth. And then we saw the unique personalities that were in that text. Gabriel is not hard to think about, though we don't know too much about the angels, but he's magnificent. He's first to obey God quickly. He does the works of God without hesitation. And he's come from the presence of God. And so the glory of God is possibly reflecting off this angel as he lights in, most likely in some way, probably in some small room, with a young Mary. Joseph is mentioned in that text. We looked at him last week. As we're going through the timeline here of Luke chapter 1, and everything's being told her, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be long after that that Joseph would get a message from either Mary or family or somebody, hey, your girl's pregnant. And so the Lord, the angel of the Lord, comes to Joseph in that dream, and he assures him that this child is of God, and he is to marry her. And then we looked at Mary, and we'll see her, her response again at the end of the message. But this young woman believes God. She believes God in the most unique circumstances, most really, in a way, a very troubling message because of the consequences. These are the personalities we saw last week. This morning, we are going to look at the announcement of the coming birth of Christ and then the ministry of Christ. That's what's really in this. And so I want to look at three thoughts this morning as we look at 31 through 38 and round out this section. And next week, we'll go to the birth in Luke chapter 2. Number one, listen to this. The profound announcement of the greatest name, the greatest power, and the greatest position. Here we have the profound announcement of the greatest name, the greatest power, and the greatest position found in these verses. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, you notice this announcement of Gabriel's is broken up into two parts here. The first announcement given in verses 31 through 33, this is the response to Mary's perplexities, right? We saw last week that in verse 29, she was very perplexed, the text says. She's pondering of what kind of salutation, what kind of greeting this is. And so here in this first set part of this announcement, there is given a response to these perplexities, these pondering. And even in verse 30, we see that there is fear there, right? And rightly so, as a glorious angel comes and appears to her. Notice in verse 31, there's this prediction of the birth of Christ. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear birth a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then what a beautiful description of his ministry. His ministry is great. We'll look at that this morning. He's going to have a great ministry, and he is great. He's the son of the Most High, and so his ministry is proclaimed as the Son of God. And he is the one who sits on the throne. What a tremendous ministry God has given him. Notice the first part of the angelic announcement to Mary seems to follow some Old Testament patterns. There are announcements like Genesis chapter 16, verse 11, the announcement of the birth of Ishmael. An angel comes and announces this. Announcement in Isaiah 7, verse 14, the birth of Emmanuel. Judges chapter 13, verse 5, we see the announcement of Samuel's birth, though his name is not given there. And in these announcements, 
Hagar's already pregnant. While mother of Samson and the woman referred to in Isaiah are not. But the first part of this angelic birth, this announcement, really has this understanding of a, a present tense. It's, it's, it's happening. <laughs> and, and, and when and how we, we wonder and marvel at the full understanding of this conception, this miraculous conception, but it's in this present tense understanding that this is taking place. It's coming now. The Greek verbs say you will or shall conceive, and yet there is a present tenseness to them. There's a great connection there to the Isaiah 7, 14 passage. This is a relationship to the Davidic household. This is the lineage. Verse 27 of our text told us that. And this, this virgin birth here is, is not the main theme in the first part of this. This is focusing on Mary and this conception which is miraculous. Notice the verse tells us that the child's name will be Jesus. No mention of Emmanuel like Joseph heard. But regardless, the name Jesus is given. Very important. Mary needs to know that this child was human. This child was, was man, though fully God. And he has a name that has been around for many years. And notice that her child is to be great and be called the Son of the Most High. He'll reign forever. So the first part of this announcement focuses on birth and title. See, this makes this announcement distinct from even the Old Testament announcements because it, it gives a description of the child's position, his role, his eternal existence. He is the son of the most high in the future reign. I love the first phrase there, and he will be great in verse 32. He'll be great. Luke chapter 1, during the appearance of the angel of the Lord to Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zacharias mainly in the temple. He said this, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, speaking of John the Baptist. Now, I think that's fascinating. John the Baptist will be sent to do great things. He's the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us. But the Bible says here, Jesus Christ will be great. He will not be seen as great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be great, the Bible says. This term, megos, is the Greek word here. In the Septuagint, it's always referred to as God in most circumstances. So for John the Baptist, it means God will have to make him great. He's born a sinner. He is not set in the womb of Elizabeth by the Spirit of God in the sense that Jesus is. So God has to make him great. God would credit greatness in a sense to the account of John the Baptist. Greatness would be in a really real way imputed to John the Baptist, but not Jesus. <laughs> As you look at this verse, you begin to realize that this is greatness unqualified. In other words, his greatness is not gained, but is eternally existing with the eternal Son of God. He is great and always has been great. And oh, how his greatness unfolds during his ministry, isn't it? I enjoy thoroughly reading through the four Gospels together. It's called the harmony of the Gospels. In that, you see the greatness of his teaching. The greatest debaters of the age came and pursued the Lord Jesus Christ, but could not stand with him. His teaching was full of authority and yet full of love at the same time. Great teacher was Jesus Great in knowledge. He knew everything. I love John chapter 2. He says he knew what was in the hearts of men. See, it's an attribute of God. He shares that essence with God. Great were his miracles. Don't we enjoy reading of the miracles? Not just, just for miracle's sake and hoping some miracle to happen to us, but we read and study those because it reminds us of the greatness of our Savior. And if he can make the blind see... And he can forgive sins. He can certainly save us. We love his healings. We love his authority. Demons fall before him. Death does not have its right. He raises people from the dead. He takes away the right of death from death. 
He's great, isn't he? The Bible says he came to save his people from sins. And as he forgives the parallax sins in that great demonstration of his greatness, the Pharisees murmur at him because they say no one can forgive sins but God. So no greater can great be than the one who can save us from our sins. This is a great title, isn't it? He is great. Now, Gabriel's statement here gives proof to his greatness. Through his this coming child's position, role, and reign, and certainly not the least, his relationship to his father. So he's giving proof to him. He has a reign. He has a name. He has a position. Gabriel's showing this is truly a unique son. Back to Mary. Look at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. At this point, she knows she's marrying a man named Joseph. She's betrothed to him. She's in this process. Somewhere this year-long engagement, she is in this process where they rarely see each other. Joseph is getting dowries together, preparing a home, and she knows she's marrying a man named Joseph. But now think about this. God has broke a 400-year-long silence. He's now spoken to Zechariah. And now her. And I doubt she even knows that that took place. God is speaking to her through Gabriel, the archangel. And maybe at this moment her thoughts were something like this. Well, I'm sure we were planning on having children. And apparently it's going to be a boy and God's already named him. I mean, that's quite revelation to her, right? But now, now she's given this description of this child. This child with unfathomable greatness. See, this is a glorious greatness. This is the greatest of ever children born. And in Galilee, here's this young woman waiting for her wedding ceremony. We see that wedding, we see a wedding ceremony in John 2 at the wedding of Canaan. That's much of probably what was awaiting her in some way or another. And before all that happens, this angel appears to her, to this nobody woman from Nowhereville, Israel, in the humblest of circumstances, far away from the religious elites in Jerusalem and so forth, here now this child will come, this great child. Scripture spoke of angels and prophecies and revelation down through the Old Testament. But now, here, here it is. God's invading human history. This is what she had studied. She had known as a, as a good daughter of Israel. She would have known that God had promised one, a seed that would come, that would crush the head of the serpent. And now here, that revelation, that invasion of human history is now taking place right before her. The revelation is real. And Mary's been chosen. Yes, it's quite perplexing. Mary's uh, message to a young woman like Mary most likely was. And she's pondering it. Now, notice, not only is Mary told that this child is going to be great, but he's going to be the son of the Most High. He doesn't say, you and Joseph are going to have a great kid. <laughs> In fact, their names are almost excluded outside of a personal pronoun to her, he is the son of the Most High. See, this term, Most High, is not shared with anyone. It is an Old Testament term. It's a term that she would have read over and over within the Bible. Moses spoke of the Most High in Deuteronomy 32, 8, that he had give, given Israel the inheritance of the nations. It refers to the Most High as one who separates the sons of man and sets boundaries King David in Psalm 7, verse 17 said, I will give thanks to the Lord according to the righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Most High. Chap chapter 9, verse 2, David again, I will be glad and exalt in you, and I will sing praises to the Most High. It's a term used of God. Nebuchadnezzar was sent to the field after his robbery of God's glory. 
He stood on his wall that they said they could drive eight chariots across. And there, after he had all the kingdoms of the world underneath his rule, took credit for it. And the next day he was eating grass. But at the end of those days, the Bible says in Daniel 4.39, Nebuchadnezzar writing himself in something, he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reasoning returned to me. And he says, I blessed the Most High. This is an amazing title. It's the Son of the Most High. So son, firstborn son, has all the right to the Father. But God said in Isaiah 48, 11, I won't share my glory with another. I will not share my glory. It belongs to me. There's no one who could have it. There's no one who could sustain it. There's no one who could bear his glory. And yet Jesus is told to be held as the exact representation of God. In fact, John chapter 14 says, we beheld his glory. That of the only begotten. What a statement. Jesus, the night before his death, speaking in a prayer of high priestly manner, says, Now, Father, return to me the glory we shared before the world was. See, these statements are out of swirl. Jesus himself spoke of his own glory in a unique way. Throughout the book of John, he says, You know me, you know my Father. You honor me, you honor my Father. You see me, you've seen my Father. John 5 particularly details the fact that Jesus is equal to God in authority, judgment, power, works, honor, and forgiveness. That's Jesus. And in fact, Joseph in that dream is told to call him Emmanuel because he has the power to forgive sins. See, this is just no Christmas carol. This is no theme of this time of year. This is our life, isn't it? If Jesus isn't who he said he is and does what he said he did, we're all in a lot of trouble, aren't we? And that's why this is such a glorious time. Now, this stunning revelation to this young woman must have been amazing. God was coming to her womb. I don't know how else to put that. Does that sound a little overwhelming? I wrote my notes. God is coming to her womb. That's what she's putting together. That's why she's pondering. That's why she's perplexing so much. God does not share his glory with another, and yet this one is the greatest. He's the son of the most high. God's coming to her womb as she wrestles with that thought. And yet he's man, and Mary is going to birth him normally. And that's because Jesus existed as the very form of God, right? In the very form of God, Philippians 2. And he did not regard his equality something to be hanged on to. He he let that go. He veiled his deity. Philippians 2, verse 6 reminds us. And he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And certainly there, there was no other way but down to leave heaven and come here. He was made in the likeness of man, the Bible says. I think that's one of my favorite phrases in that verse. He was made in the likeness of men. See, somebody has to represent you and me. It can't be some spirit. It can't be some idea that sticks and holds through time. It has to be a person to represent us. It has to be someone of our flesh and blood who can represent us but without sin. And the Bible says he was found in the appearance of man and he humbled himself to the obedience of, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, this is the incarnation. See, Mary, Mary's watching this. She's listening. Somewhere along, somewhere immediately around this time, this conception takes place. And we'll get into that more here in a moment. But she birthed this child naturally. And she watches her son grow in wisdom and stature and socially and all of that. All to become this sympathetic high priest who is like us, who suffered in all ways like us. He had to become made like his brother in Hebrews 2 says, that he might become this merciful, faithful high priest. And he himself, the Bible says, was tempted in all ways 
And listen, brothers and sisters, you're going through some temptations, you're going through some struggles. Do not run to man to solve those things. Maybe you come to a pastor, but our goal is to bring you to Jesus who solves those things. He will come to your aid. See, Jesus was hungry, thirsty, fatigued, slept, learned, grew, loved, amazed. He was glad, he was angry, he was indignant. He was troubled, he was grieved, he was overcome by future events. He exercised faith, read scriptures, prayed, had compassion on others. He was brokenhearted, felt what we felt, tempted, had physical pain. He was rejected, bled, suffered, and died so they can save you and me. See, he is our mediator. He is the one between God and man. So he wasn't here in spirit, he was one of us. This is why songs that we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the word of the Father now in flesh appearing. The word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word, the word was equal to God, and the word was God, not a God. That's a lie. He's God in every way. He comes, and the song goes on to say, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So Mary would watch her sinless child from birth to death to resurrection. And you and I see him in the scriptures. And by faith we believe that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice in verse 33 that this great son of the most high also is a king. He's King Jesus. This is why the Magi come. This is why the great gifts are given. He's king. And he's not just a king, he's the king. In fact, he's the king that king, his kingdom never ends. In four years, we may have a new president. I'll leave it at that. Kings come and go, rulers come and go, they die, we lay in state, we lower flags. Not this king. <laughs> this king beats sin, Satan, and death. He has a kingdom that will never end. See, this is a glorious announcement. This is, this is not one that's going to die. Paul reminded the nation as he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, David died. His bones are here with us in Acts chapter 16. I'm speaking of one who will never die. They needed to put their faith in Jesus Christ. They needed to believe they were sinners to ever have a relationship with the king of kings. And the Bible tells us that we will rule and reign with this king of kings, lord of lords. This is what's coming to Mary's womb. So first... What Gabriel is announcing is the truth about the one who will be truly great. And that babe in the manger that's going to come nine months after this passage, we'll look at this next week in Luke 2, is fully God. He's able to declare the end from the beginning. He's a ruler over the visible and invisible. He's a, he holds dominion over all thrones, authorities, and rulers because all things are before him and all things are through him and all things are held together by him because he is creator God. This is no ordinary babe in the manger. Second thought. The glorious announcement of the creative power of the unhindered and holy triune God. I know that's a mouthful, but I'm trying to explain the Trinity is involved in this. Let me read that again. The glorious announcement of the creative power of the unhindered and holy triune God. Look with me in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Maybe we would have said the same. Maybe in all of this glorious appearance of this archangel, this incredible announcement of greatness and sonship and eternal ruling, we would might have lost a little focus ourselves. Gabriel's been speaking to her, telling her these things that were going to happen. And they're going to happen now, and they'll never happen again because this is it. This is what everything's pointed to. So it's understandable that she might not have grasped everything Gabriel said in the last few verses. But I think Mary knew her Old Testament. 
And I think she started to put together, he, he in this overwhelming message is talking about the Messiah. And it is said in a lot of traditional writings of, of ancient times that Jewish girls prayed that they may carry the Messiah. Maybe Mary prayed for that. But it would be her child here. It would be her child that's given this throne of David. It would be her son that would have this eternal kingdom. And her son that would fulfill the promise of 2 Samuel 7 that a throne would be established forever. So could Mary's mind even wrap around this? Well, I imagine that Mary recognized that these were a description of the Messiah that she wanted and longed for like many in Israel were. But her mind had a huge problem. And it's in this verse. I'm a virgin. I've never known a man. And certainly her mind may have raced a few other things. What do I tell Joseph? <laughs> oh, my parents. <laughs> what are they going to do when they hear this incredible, unbelievable story? I'm pregnant by God. <laughs> what about society and reputation? She knew the law. She was probably raised understanding that, that this could be a death sentence for her, at least prostitution and rejection of the family. And here she says, I'm, I'm a virgin, how can this be? Some question Mary here, and they say, why, why would Mary even ask the question, how can this be? Some religions have said that Mary's question to Gabriel was because she knew she had given this perpetual vow to virginity. She had given herself to God, and so how are you going to do this? Well, that's just false teaching, and there's no evidence of that thinking in Mary. In fact, the Greek verbs that are used here argue against such a false view. Literally, it reads this way, a man I have not known. A man, present tense, has not come to be with me, is the idea of the Greek. She understands what it takes to be pregnant. But meanwhile, at, at this time, at this moment, without a doubt, she knew she was a virgin. And Mary was not looking down the road. She's, she's thinking in this conversation is present tense, present circumstances. That would change. Her virginity would change with other children. Joseph said he believed God so much that he did not know her to the birth of the son. He, he was so impacted by the message of the coming Jesus Christ in his wife-to-be's womb that he set apart his husband, husbandly priorities in order to protect the son. Something out of this world would have to take place in Mary's mind. This is, this is impossible. Remember, she's young. She's, she knows enough that this has to be something beyond what she understands. But Gabriel was delivering God's message, and a message held the answers to her virginity in a miraculous conception. And that's what we start to get into. Look at verse 35. Now the answer is coming. Gabriel's going to answer her. It's a great question. We all would have asked it. And the answer is, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Gabriel's answer in short, the triune God will take care of everything. <laughs> I've been sent from him. See, Gabriel's reply and proclamation, and he proclaims his direct and divine involvement. Notice first that the divine work of conception comes through the creative work of the Holy Spirit and the limitless power of the Most High. That's obviously the Father, right? And then the result of that, second, we find the result of that is that this matchless, magnificent significance, namely the holiness, namely the complete absence of sin and evil from this child is proof of this divine relationship. That something greater than a natural relationship between a man and woman, something greater has to happen to protect this holiness, to keep this child from evil or sin. 
So there must be a divine relationship here. The word overshadow, overshadow helps us have some insight here. The Greek word has the idea of being enveloped by something. It's used of total eclipse. In a sense, something darkens out and comes and envelops something else. And this was God blocking the sin nature of man for the conception of the Savior. There is no other way to account for his sinless impeccability, is there? God has to protect this child from Mary's sin nature and certainly from Joseph's. So the triune God displays his powers the most high here. He does something that no one else can do. The Holy Spirit envelops around the womb of Mary and completely overshadows her, shielding the baby from Mary's own sin nature. And that baby is placed in the tiniest form in the womb of Mary. And listen, brothers and sisters, this is nothing but the creative power of the Most High. And this creative power parallels in equality with the creative work of the Holy Spirit. And then in the middle of that is the Son surrendering His will to the plan of the Father. And those who reject the Trinity, they can't have the miraculous conception. (laughs) Because all three are involved here, aren't they? The creative power of the Most High, the creative work of the Holy Spirit, and the surrendering of the Son to make this possible so that we have an impeccable Savior who can die for our sins. And so this creative God who brought life out of nothing, who created human beings out of dust, is also able quite easily to create human life within Mary's womb. At the same time, I love the role of the Spirit, right? John chapter 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. So there he is. And throughout the Old Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's often used to identify and grant special favors to accomplish certain works that God had. He comes and gives great divine aid to King David and others. And here he is involved. So not only do we see the creative power of the Most High and the life-giving source of the Holy Spirit collaborating in the conception of the divine son in the womb of Mary. But think about this. We have a clear setting apart of a special role for this holy child that only could be filled by Jesus himself. There the Spirit is anointing this child and setting this child apart for the greatest work, for the greatest plan God ever laid down, the rescue of us from our sins. Well, this holy child placed... Place, his holy God's placed in a holy child, completely separate from man's fallen condition, untouched by depravity, in the womb of Mary is that what I call a matchless and magnificent conception. But Joseph, I want you to see Joseph because he's in this picture. Joseph, we find in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Turn over there real quickly with me. I really want to talk to this guy someday. Bible tells us that he was a righteous man in verse 19. I don't know how he heard. He didn't get a text. That would have been a tough one. (laughs) Maybe it came through family members or some written note. But he figures out in verse 20, 18, 19, my wife is pregnant. He's overwhelmed with the thought of this. It's clear Joseph's in love with Mary. These are not thoughts and plans of an angry man. They're thoughts and plans of a righteous man. He's not wanting to disgrace her, verse 19. He's figuring out how to send her away secretly so she's not stoned in the town square or pushed into prostitution or rejected by her own family. He's, he's trying to figure out how to, how to save her in a sense. And as he's doing this, he falls asleep, doesn't he? Verse 20, when he considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, so he's asleep. 
Have you ever been so burdened by something, trying to understand what God is doing in your life, and you lay in your bed, and you pray, and you maybe cry, and even weep to God, and you pour your heart out to him, but after a while, you just drift off to sleep. I imagine that's what's taking place here. But here in the dream, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David, marking who he is in the lineage of the promised seed, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And here's the statement. He sums up in a very short statement all that was given to Mary with more detail. The child who has been conceived in her, Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. So this child... This child's holy because God is holy. This child is holy because spirit is holy. This child is holy because the eternal son of God has always been holy. See, this this child, this holy child, Jesus called Emmanuel to, to Joseph, is completely shrouded by the Holy Spirit. And this passage rejects any crude notion of, of some kind of mating with the Holy Spirit or any human involvement of it. And we thank God for that. If you've come to Jesus, if you've come to God through Jesus alone, you can have the utmost confidence that Christ was impeccable as he hung on that cross because of this occasion right here. He was sinless. And this is why we vehemently defend this. Because our salvation rides on this. And friends, look, this glorious instruction found in the conception of of the impeccability of Jesus Christ flows directly into your salvation. And truly, Jesus is given this miraculous position, this eternal greatness. And he's conceived and planned by the triune God so that he could save us from our sins. We tend to see Christ as our Savior. I want you to see today that God is our Savior, the Spirit's our Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. Don't you see that in the text? They're all involved. And and there's no separating, there's no diminishing of any roles of the Trinity when it comes to our salvation, brothers and sisters. Third and last thought, the astonishing announcement that leads to faith in a holy God where nothing is impossible. The astonishing announcement that leads to a faith in a holy God where nothing is impossible. Look at verse 36 with me. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. To encourage Mary's faith, Gabriel reveals another miracle God has done. He's taken a barren woman, her cousin Elizabeth, and has granted her a child. Notice the word behold there. It's a it's a great word, I do, is the, I do is the, the, the Greek word. It means it, it, what he's doing here is he's forming, behold, look, he's forming a parallel to the work of God has performed in Zechariah with what he's going to do with you. Although a greater work in you, there's kind of a parallel. Behold, look what he's done here. I want you to see this so you'll have faith. I want to strengthen you. And Elizabeth... God, in his power, as he did many times in the Old Testament, overcomes barrenness. He overcomes it. And this was not a promise of something to come. Gabriel was revealing she's already in her sixth month. Though Mary did not ask for the sign, look at the graciousness of God. Your own cousin Elizabeth is already in her sixth month. You know who she is. By that statement, Mary knew Elizabeth. She knew the long barrenness. She knew the shame that came with her, her dear family member, Elizabeth. And she had been, had her entire married life. And certainly this physical reality is undebatable when you get to verse 41. Because when Elizabeth and Mary meet, maybe their two bellies touch. John the Baptist leaps in the womb. What an amazing thing. And so God, in his sovereign plan, allows Mary and Elizabeth to be woven together. Can you imagine that friendship? (laughs) Can you imagine the mentoring and the discipleship that went on with Elizabeth much older? Verse 37 marks a statement that we can't miss today. 
It's a statement that much of us in this room, many of us in this room need to hear over and over again. Gabriel cries out with his last statement. This is his last statement. Mary's going to respond, but this is it. This is the last statement. This is what he wants her to know, what he wants her to go home with, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Gabriel's ex- explanation of Elizabeth's pregnancy was given to Mary in order to remind her that nothing is beyond the power, the reach of an almighty, sovereign God. And Gabriel is simply affirming that God has the power to accomplish what he said he will do. See, this verse reminds us that the law of nature cannot restrict the creator. It cannot restrict the divine legislator. He has right over what he set in order to legislate beyond it. Elizabeth will be pregnant. Mary will consume outside of human involvement. See, isn't verse 37 extremely encouraging to you? I read it over and over this week. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Who's here today? Who needs this reminder today? Who in this room? I'm talking to you. Who needs this reminder that nothing is impossible with God? Every one of us. Who who thinks their sin? Maybe you're in here. You think your sin is too great or you're listening online. Your sin is too great. Nothing is impossible for God. Maybe you're here and you have a broken heart. Maybe your spirit has been crushed. Maybe somebody on this planet has hurt you. God can heal you. He can give you joy again. He can bless you beyond what you can imagine with joy and contentment in Him. Maybe your marriage is a wreck. Maybe you've hidden things in your life for years. God can fix that. Nothing is impossible for him. Are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you overwhelmed? Are you uncertain of the future? Are you seeking direction? Will you let God's word remind you this morning that nothing is impossible? See, Christmas is about hope. Not just I hope I get something. It is the hope that we rest in, isn't it? That God did exactly what he said he did. And that son was protected from human depravity. And he was perfect and sinless and grew up in a sinless way. And never, never broke a command of God, but fulfilled them. And went to the cross perfect for us. See, if that's true, if that's true, he can fix your marriage. He can heal your heart. He can fix relationships. See, that's what we hold on to. This was impossible. Mary, maybe 16, 18, I don't know. Some people put her younger than that. Maybe she's in a room and this Gabriel shows up. What? Nothing is impossible. See, humanly, there's great risk to follow God's way, isn't there, sometimes? Mary had to follow it. You imagine Mary telling her family this message. What? Who? You know, it might be a reason why they're on the road by themselves in Luke 2. You imagine what people looked at her as she walked down the street. See, there's great consequence in believing God's word. There's great consequence of sometimes staying in something that doesn't earthly feel like you should stay in it. But there's, but there's great reward when you believe that God is, has the ability to, to do the impossible. And you have to go back to your own salvation because it's impossible for you to save yourself. And God did just that, didn't he? He saved you. 
So what truth, let me ask you a question here before I end this. What truth in God's word is he asking you to submit to right now and it may be costly? Think about it. From finances to marriage to health to to whatever truth that the Bible speaks of. Are you willing to submit to it? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He does the impossible. See, Mary's captured with the greatness of God. And even though she may not understand everything that was given to her, she says in verse 38, Behold your doulos, bond slave, lifer, I am now committed to you until I die. Do you believe in him that much? That's what Mary did. May we follow in Mary's example as those who commit to the word of God for life. Father, we read these passages and Maybe for some in here, it's just been a story. It's been a part of a month-long celebration since they were little. There's this Jesus who was born in this manger, and there were shepherds and wise men and, and angels, and it's all nice, and then we make a New Year's resolution. But not for the Christian. Our eternity, our eternity is in this passage. God, you had to overshadow her. You had to separate her from Joseph and from her own sin nature and place that child in the womb. Or we have no salvation. And so, Lord, we marvel at this. This is a miraculous conception. This is magnificent. This is matchless. And it causes this church, these believers that I have the privilege of standing before, to marvel at you, God, that you would do such a thing. And so, Lord, please make our Christmas season extremely worshipful. Cause us to bend our knee. Cause us to believe again in, new, in you, maybe afresh, maybe anew for some in here, that you can do the impossible. You can fix the broken. You can save us for eternity. Lord, strengthen us through this. And may you be glorified by what we've said here today and what we've sung. In Jesus' name, amen.